Well, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a guy named Jeffrey Skillings. Jeffrey Skillings was the CEO of Enron before uh, he was, did some illegal accounting practices and uh, moved uh, hundreds of millions of dollars around, and now he's uh, serving a 24-year sentence in jail. If you've never heard of him, you probably definitely heard of Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff, the, the phrase Ponzi scheme came back on the map because of him. Uh, he was moving around and hiding uh, about $150 million, and now he's serving a 150-year prison sentence. If you've not heard of either of those, you've heard of Martha Stewart, right? Okay, Martha Stewart, she got in trouble for insider trading, and she did five months in jail. Why am I talking about this? Because those are three examples of white-collar crime, and what we're going to look at today is the most interesting and confusing parable that Jesus tells us. It's the parable of the shrewd steward, and it looks at first glance a story about white-collar crime. So turn to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at this, this parable. It's called the parable of the shrewd steward. As you're turning to Luke 16, turn to your neighbor and say, shrewd steward. Try to say it if you can. If you can. Not bad. Not bad. It's, it's a tongue twister. Okay. Seeing if you're awake. Great. So here's what this is about. Jesus, in, he told about 40 parables, give or take one or two, told about 40 parables, and almost a third of the parables are either about money or they're about the final judgment. That's right, Jesus loves to talk about things that you don't even like to think about, that I don't even like to think about. And, and Jesus talks about money a lot, not because he cares about it a lot, but because we care about it a lot, right? Most of you probably checked your bank account today, or your mint.com, or you know exactly what you have in stocks, and you, you understand your debt, and you spend a lot of time thinking about how to get money, how to keep money, how to invest money. Jesus knows that. And he wants, the church has always been a place where you can talk about money. Now, here's what happens when you talk about money. Uh, when you talk about money, generous people love it when you talk about money. They're like, oh, praise the Lord. But, but stingy people and people who worship, God as a, uh, worship money as a God, they don't like it when you talk about money because they feel like you're attacking their God. And, I, and I've had a lot of experience with this because for years, and I've told you guys some of this, I, I raised support to do college ministry. And so I would, I would have all these meetings face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, in your house, I'm talking about money. And, and, and you've seen this, this is probably some of you, and if it's not you, you know people like this. People are like 90 to 95% normal until you talk about money with them. Have you ever had that experience? It's like, well, you're fairly a normal American person until I ask you about your finances. And then it's almost like there's a sub-personality with you, right? And so and what's happened in the American church is you can talk about anything except people's money. Like, like people get together, it's not uncommon for men to get together in a we, ha- we call them here a DNA group or something you know, like that. And men get together and they, and they may ask themselves, are right, you looking at pornography or you, you know, yes or no, or are you fighting that? And then the next question might be, well, how are your finances? And the, and the response is usually, well, you're getting a little personal. <laughs> it's like, well, hold on a second, <laughs> right? But isn't that weird? We laugh because it's funny. It's like, okay, there, there's, we can talk about even our sexuality in some ways and some of that, but we don't talk about our finances. It's, it's honestly a very American thing. When I went to India, everybody, when I was in India last May, everybody would always ask me how much I make. Like it was a normal question, and everyone would just tell me what they make. Now, I'm not saying that's the healthy answer too, but I'm saying that, that what's interesting is that Jesus talks about money because he cares about us. And, and, and he tells this interesting parable called the parable of the shrewd steward. And what I want to do is I want to I read it to you guys. Uh, it's only nine verses, and then we're going to talk about it verse by verse because it is one of the most complex and confusing parables that Jesus tells. Let, let's read it together. Verse one, it says this, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, and I told you this before, there are some parables that are individuals, there are some parables that are to crowds, there are some parables that are to religious leaders. Um, there, are, there are a whole section of parables called parables of discipleship. This would be one of them. Where he would take his disciples aside by themselves to teach them a truth. 
Here's what he does. Uh, he said to the disciples, there was a rich man. And just so you know, that's going to be God in the story. God is very, very rich. So there's a rich man who had a manager. That's going to be you. Uh, the word manager probably should be translated steward. Okay, this would be the COO, the CFO. This is like, this happens today. Really rich people have other people manage all their money. That's what this is. It's a really rich guy who has another guy who's stewarding and managing the money. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Verse 2, he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. We're going to see the word manager, management, steward or stewardship is used seven times in this parable. For you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. See, what would have happened is his house would have been on the property with the rich man. Um, he was obviously getting paid that way. So his income's gone, his house is gone, his retirement's gone. Um, and then obviously if he's going to try to get another job, they're going to call this rich man as a reference. It's not going to go well. So verse four is his plan. I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager, not, this is important, not for his dishonesty, not for his lying, for his shrewdness. Now, what is shrewdness? Shrewdness is practical living today because you know what's happening tomorrow. That's what it is. And part of the whole point of this parable is that Christians are terrible at that. That we have the greatest future, but we don't live at all today in light of that. And then he says this, for the sons of this world, that's non-Christians, are more shrewd. He's rebuking the disciples in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's Christians. And then he ends with this phrase in verse nine. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, which literally means unrighteous wealth. Literally, the translation is untrue wealth. It's just, it, it, it's not something bad. It's being compared to the true riches in heaven. Basically, when you read unrighteous wealth, it means cash. That's what it means. It means temporary wealth on this earth, not a bad thing. But he's just saying that's what it is. He says, by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I don't know why anyone thinks this is confusing. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Okay, let, let's take it apart verse by verse. First, look at verse one. It says this. He said to the disciples, there was a rich man. Here's what we see Jesus doing. He loves the disciples, so he talks to them about money. That if you love your spouse, you'll talk about money, even though you'll probably have to fight about it for like a long time. <laughs> Because you have to, when I say, you know, when I say fight about it, I mean stumble through trying to talk about money because it's very emotional, right? The two things that couples fight about the most are, statistically, are finances and free time. Why? Because they're both limited. Um, if you love your kids, you're going to talk to your kids about money. You're going to give them chores. You're going to give them an allowance. You're going to teach them about giving. You're going to teach them about saving. As they get older, you're going to tell them how foolish it is to have consumer debt. You're going to help them pick the right college. You're going to help them think about through all of these things. Now, what, what Jesus does is he talks to his disciples about money. Now, I remember when I was planning this church, I had a lot of people come to me with a lot of advice, a lot of pastors I deeply respect. One of them gave me a great piece of advice. He said, you know what? You're not going to be able to disciple your church and disciple your people if you don't talk to them about money. So never be afraid to talk about money. One, because what Jesus talks about a lot. But two, he said, you really actually, it's so central and essential in people's lives that if you don't talk about it, you cannot disciple them. 
He said, imagine somebody trying to disciple the church and not talk about sex, lust, pornography, fantasy life. He said, and money is 10 times more powerful than sex. Jesus spoke about money more than he spoke about sex. And so, so Jesus begins to tell us this. Then he says this. He said to his disciples, there was a rich man. Here's the big thing. He's, he wants to start with God. Every, every parable, almost every parable, starts with God. Before it gets to you and what you need to do, it starts with God. And here's what it says about God. God is very rich. This is, this is basically the doctrine of creation. Why is doctrine important? Why is theology important? Because here's what he's saying. God created everything, and, and God owns everything. And actually, this is kind of humbling. God has never relinquished ownership of anything ever. All he does, God owns it, but he loans it to you and me and us for seven to ten decades, usually. And you know that because everything that you've ever had or that you ever will have, you're going to eventually throw it away, give it away, sell it, die and leave it as an inheritance. You, everything you have, you're just going to have for a small part of your life. This is why Randy Alcorn, who wrote this really, really good, small, famous book called The Treasure Principle, he says he thinks every family should get in the car together and find the nearest dump. Just get the, let's get the kids, well, at least we're going to do this one time, let's get the kids in the car, I don't care if we've got to drive an hour, we're going to find the biggest, closest dump we can and just show them this is where everything mostly goes. Every, all the cars out there, all the TV, all the technology out there, this is where it's all ultimately going to go. And so what he's saying is that it, the, the first principle, we're going to talk about finances, we're going to talk about stewardship, we're going to talk about a lot of things, management, we're going to, but he said the first principle is you have to see God as your provider. Uh, say it another way, uh, your credit card's not your provider. Your job's not your provider, ultimately. Uh, your wealthy parents are not your provider. Your trust fund is not your provider. And because whatever you think is your provider, you're ultimately going to worship it. And saying, here's what God does. He's going to actually give it to us as a stewardship. Now, now here's what he says. I want you to continue on and look at this. Because in, in the next verse, he says this. There was a rich man who had, still verse one. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So this is interesting. So he begins to talk about how people deal with money and possessions. And and I'm going to talk about this for a while because I think this is something that Christians are very confused about. And oftentimes we have an overly, I've had this in the past, we have an overly simplistic view of what the Bible teaches on money and not realizing that the Bible actually has a very deep, very sophisticated, very comprehensive, sometimes complex view of money. So let me just talk about it a little bit. So like most Christians tend to fall into one of two camps. They fall into what's called prosperity theology or they fall into what's called poverty theology, right? And you can usually tell this by how the pastor dresses, right? Like the prosperity churches, the whole idea of prosperity theology is the more you have, the closer you are to God. So the pastor has a nice watch, he wears really nice shoes, he wears a very nice suit, he drives a very nice car, and everyone in the pews are like, hey, praise the Lord, because he's blessed, and that's what it means. But they have no category for all the verses in the Bible that says sometimes God gives you over to your sinful desires as a judgment. And sometimes all money will do is confirm you and affirm you in your worldliness. So more money is not, it could be a sign of blessing, it could be a sign of God's judgment on a person's life. Well, that's one thought, okay. So then, then on the other side, there's poverty theology, and this is what most kind of small churches in America believe. Poverty theology is, is the less we pay the pastor, and he better never wear name brand clothes, and we're gonna pay him very little, and he's gonna have to learn how to trust God. And he better never have a nice car, and he, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the complete opposite mentality, and it's, it's the less I have, and the cheaper I, we brag, Christians are the ones who brag about how little they spend on things. Oh, you'll never believe how little I spend on this, you know? Um, because we, some, and it's not, we're all about saving money, we're all about, for, it's, but the whole idea is that some people think the less I spend and the less I have, the godlier I am. 
And I had to learn this lesson because I had a friend of mine, great godly guy. He had the worst car forever. He was driving this terrible car. And um, self-admittedly, he would say that. And, but he would drive it and drive it and drive it. And finally, he sold it and got rid of it, gave it away. He bought himself just an okay used car. And he said, Kyle, he said, I was so self-righteous driving that car. He said, I drove that car so I could judge other people who made the same amount of money as me but had a nicer car. It's like, you see how, you start to see how deep the human heart is. He said, I was religiously, self-righteously judging other people, and I had to repent and buy a new car. <laughs> Some of you are like, this sounds like a great idea, yeah. Yeah, a good problem to have, right? But, but the whole idea is that it's, it's more sophisticated than that, right? Because in the Bible, there's, there's the ungodly poor and the godly poor, right? The ungodly poor, the Bible talks about them. It's like, well, they're lazy, you know, and they don't work, and, and it was their own sinful, foolish decisions that that's why they're poor. And, and the, the Proverbs talks a lot about the ungodly poor. But the problem with us is a lot of times we look at someone, and if they're poor, our sinful hearts actually think, it's your fault, you're ungodly. Well, then there's, what about the godly poor? The godly poor, it's like, well, they love Jesus Christ, but they don't have a, they don't have a lot of finances. And just for the record, that's most Christians throughout all human history, including Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was godly and poor. Well, then there's the uh, ungodly rich, and there's the godly rich, right? You, you read the Old Testament, you're like, well, lots of ungodly rich people, like all the kings that, that the prophets have to condemn, and the tax collectors in the New Testament. Okay, those would be ungodly rich people, because they're, they got their money in bad ways, or you know, they, they were using their money in bad ways, whatever it is. But then there's also the godly rich, which is actually even probably more people in the Old Testament. It's like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Job and David and Joseph and Saul. I mean, I could go on. And so really it comes down to, well, how do you view money? And people view money a lot of different ways. Here's a couple ways people view money. People think, oh, what's mine is mine. That's the selfish way people view money, right? Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, something like that, right? Doggy dog world, everything's mine. Um, and that, that would not be a biblical mindset. Uh, the other mindset is, uh, what's yours is mine. That's not a healthy mindset. That's the, hey, will the government pay for everything, please? Maybe my parents will pay for everything. Don't I just deserve to be taken care of? My, there's no idea of, it can lead into an entitlement mentality. Uh, it can lead to stealing. What's yours is mine, it doesn't matter, I'll take it. Some people have what's mine is yours, which sounds good until you work it out. You're like, well, that actually might be giving you a handout instead of a hand up. It might be enabling you. And if I give everything that I have away, now I'm needy. And now I, I create a situation where everyone has to take care of me, and that's not good. And I don't read all the verses about private property in the Bible, like do not steal, which is basically a, the, the whole idea of private property shows up in the Ten Commandments, personal property. So what's the biblical idea? The biblical idea is what's mine is God's. And the word for that is stewardship. And I want to show you, it shows right up here in the verse. Here's what it says. Again, this is in verse one and two. It says this. <clears throat> he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. That is literally the word stewardship. And there, there are two mega themes in all of scripture. There's only two. So I can sim simplify and summarize the whole Bible in two words, salvation and stewardship. That from Genesis to Revelation, God's telling two stories. The story of God saving a people and the story of God calling those people to live for him and to live out, live out what he's given them in the world. In fact, when you die, I don't know exactly how they'll be worded, but there will be basically two questions that you'll be asked when you die. The first question will be a salvation question. The second question will be a stewardship question. The salvation question will be, what did you do with my son? Did you receive him? Did you repent? 
And that'll determine whether you have a place in heaven. Because we don't get to heaven on our own, we get to heaven because of what Christ has done, not what we do. But the other question is a stewardship question, which is, what, ha- what did you do with my stuff? And we'll talk about that, but that's everything that God's given you. How did you leverage it? How did you deepen it? How did you develop it? And that will actually determine not your place in heaven, that's by Christ, it will determine your position in heaven, which is different. And that's a whole other sermon, but there are different positions in heaven. There are different levels and hierarchies in heaven, and that's a whole other sermon. But, but the whole idea is, those are the two questions, the question of salvation, the question of stewardship. Now here's what's happened in the church. In the church, this is kind of behind the scenes, we've stopped using the word stewardship. I don't know the last time you heard the word stewardship in church, but the reason that people don't use the word stewardship in church anymore is because in the 1980s and in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, everybody did stewardship campaigns. Which are like, it was like stewardship was like word for we're going to raise a lot of money as a church. That's what that used to mean. And so everybody's like, well, let's get rid of that word. Um, and let's change it with a really happy word, generosity, which is a word you hear a lot today. The problem is they're two different concepts. That, so here's what stewardship is. Stewardship is managing your life so there's margin. That's the definition of stewardship. So, so, so here's, it means you manage your emotions so that you have enough. It means you manage your energy so you can do different things. It means that you manage your schedule so that there's some free time and you can take a vacation occasionally. It means that you manage your finances so that you can give and so that you can save. The, the problem is, a lot of times churches will say, be generous! And everyone's like, I, 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 I don't have any time left. Because no one ever taught me how to manage my time. And I say yes to everything. I need to learn how to say no. And people say, be generous. It's like, well, I have no idea how to steward my finances. And I've actually made a lot of foolish decisions for the last 30 years, and I'm $50,000 in debt. And I bought a house I couldn't afford, and I, and I overspend every month. And it's like, well, that's a, now we're talking, we can't even talk about generosity because we have to spend months talking with you about stewardship. So th- these are two very, very important concepts. And, and I want you to see what Jesus says about stewardship. He talks about stewardship, and we ask the question, well, what do we steward? And, and the biblical answer for the big category, if you'd say, what is the one thing we steward? We steward the grace of God in our life. And the grace of God is any gift, anything that God's given us, which is basically everything. Like, it's really humbling. So if you, because I know a lot of us, we, we, you know, we say the right things, but then it's like, we feel like, well, the reason that I have what I have is because, well, I'm this smart, or I work this hard, I went to this school, or I network these relationships, or I'm working more than other people. And that would be true from a human level. And the Bible talks about, Proverbs talks about work ethic and other things. But what's interesting is if you think about it, when you were born and where you were born determine so many things, right? If you were born in Afghanistan, you wouldn't have anything that you have right now. If you were born on a mountaintop in Tibet in the, in the fourth century, you would have nothing. So that's a humbling thought. But then think, here, let me bring it down to us even a little bit more. So the number one determining factor of wealth and the ability to make financial, have financial success in the United States and in the Western world, this has been, the literature's done, it's been written, it's been proven, the number one predictor that you will be financially successful is IQ. It's like, makes sense. It's like, well, who's going to have all the money? The smartest people, probably. They're going to figure out how to get it. They're going to figure out how to go to the best schools. They're going to be able to pass the test. They're going to be able to, well, it makes a lot of sense. Here's the thing. If you ever read the literature on the IQ literature, it is depressing. Because all the IQ literature says is you can do nothing about your IQ. You can't do, there's been, not one thing has been proven to increase your IQ. You can make people stupider. <laughs> That's actually fairly easy. But you don't feed them when they're young. Seriously. You, the number, well, that's a whole other thing. I won't get into that. But, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, the, but you can, but if, you don't, if you don't give little kids enough nourishment, their IQ will go down. That's been proven. But there's nothing you can do to increase your IQ. Well, it's just, I only say that to just bring it to us real. It's like, well, okay. 
It's like the number one determining factor in the Western world of whether or not you will make money is something you have no control over and you cannot change. That should just create a humility in us and a gratefulness and a thankfulness. So, so he begins with that. So what do we steward? We steward a couple things. We steward, and we talk about them here. We, talk, we steward our time, right? So, and by the way, whenever I say these, my temptation as I was studying this, your temptation as you're listening to this is to think you're stewarding these things well, and you probably are not. Or you're probably not stewarding them as well as you could, right? I mean, that would be a fair, that would be a good way to approach the text. I'm, maybe I'm doing these, maybe I could do them better. Maybe I'm doing one of these, maybe I'm not doing others. So you steward your time, basically, you steward your time, it's your most limited resource, right? You know this, you get 30,000 days, roughly. Um, and the truth is, if you don't have a calendar, if you don't have a routine, if you don't have a schedule, if you don't have a to-do list, you're probably not stewarding your time well. That would be level 101. If you don't have those things, you're probably not stewarding your time well. Second thing would be your talents. Your talents are like, man, all the gifts that God's given you. It might be your IQ, it might be your skill set in some area, it might be your personality, right? It might be how you understand real estate. I don't know what it is. But, but recently, this last week, I watched the, the little documentary series called um, Inside Bill's Brain. It's about Bill Gates. It's fascinating. It's just three episodes. And the whole documentary is like, well, what if we talk to the, one of the smartest guys on earth? Bill, it's, it's, you know, he's, at least that we know of, Bill Gates would be one of the greatest, smartest men on earth. I mean, he created the modern day basic computer and all that. So they go and they meet with him. And episode one, I couldn't believe it. It was just like so emotional to watch. Episode one, like, Bill, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you know, I'm basically, I'm, I'm, I, I have this mind that can really solve difficult problems. So I'm trying to figure out how to create a new toilet for the developing world because sanitation is the number one concern in the world. It's like, are you Batman? You know, that's what I felt like. Well, I'm like, who are you? And then it's like, that's the end of episode one. You're like, well, that was amazing because you see how he's trying to do that. Episode two, it's like, well, Bill, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm trying to cure polio. It's like, well, why are you, Bill? Well, actually, what I have is I've got this mind that I just can track things. And the reason that polio has continued on is because they've actually been missing certain areas of where it is. So I've got this, I'm going to use my mind to figure out it out. And then the third episode, it's like, Bill, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm trying to repurpose nuclear power. It's like, who are you? You know, and he's just this old guy sitting there with glasses. Who's got, who's got billions of dollars, and here he, here he is, and he's trying to leverage his mind. And that, you know, that I, that from what I know, I don't think Bill Gates is a Christian. But what he is, is he's, he's somebody who knows what he has, at least in part, and he's trying to use it for good. We could learn a lot from that. The third thing is our treasure, right? Which is, which is uh, our resources and our possessions and our money and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and the truth is, a lot of us think, well, we're doing a good job with this. And, but, but, but if you don't know, if you couldn't answer these four basic questions, then you, you would not be stewarding money well. You have to be able to answer these four questions. What do I own? What do I owe? What do I earn? Where does it go? I know it sounds like a Dr. Seuss run, okay? Uh, but, but maybe remember, what do I own? What do I owe? What do I earn? Where does it go? If you can't answer those basic questions, then you don't even know. It's like, well, you don't know how much you make. You don't know what that you owe. You don't know where everything's going this month. Those would be the fundamental one-on-one questions that then you could begin to say, what can I give? What can I save? What can, how can I live? Then there's our bodies, right? Which is a whole other area that God's given us to steward. You know, and, and, and for some of us, it's like, you know, we're not eating healthy and we're not drinking enough water and we're not getting enough rest and we're not having even some basic exercising in our lives. And so we come home and there's no strength. You have no vitality. You have no energy. And if you're gonna be the kind of person that, that is not gonna take care of your body, what I would suggest is to sit your wife and husband down, sit your spouse down, sit your kids down and basically just say to them, I'm not planning on taking care of myself for the next 20 or 30 years. And I'm actually, I'm not gonna do that. And so what's going to happen is I'm gonna cause us a lot of financial stress and undue harm at the end of our lives. That's what I'm gonna do. And I just wanna let you know that right now that I'm gonna make decisions today that are gonna hurt you and the children tomorrow. 
It's kind of quiet in here. But it's like, you know, but it's like, yeah, well, we don't do that, right? Because, well, the definition of being shrewd in this story is to see the dangers ahead and then make decisions to change them in the present. Well, then there's, you know, on top of that, there's the gospel message. I've talked about that before, but that's a great stewardship. Paul, this is so powerful. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, here's how I want you to think about me. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. That's what every Christian is. We have a stewardship for, for what we know from God's word. And then finally, we steward our relationships, right? And that's part of what he's saying here. We begin to steward our marriage. We steward our kids. We steward the gifts that God's given us. And there's two types of stewards. Look at the end of verse one. It says that he was wasting his possessions. Now, whenever we hear wasting possessions, you probably think, like I think when I first read wasting, we think, okay, here's what it means to waste uh, things. It means to frivolously and foolishly spend them. Like we think, like I think I had a buddy I was discipling in college. He was in college. I was out of college. I was on staff. And and he was in so much consumer debt, he didn't understand credit card payments, he didn't understand all this stuff, and so I met with him and I said, hey, we're gonna, do, we're gonna go old school. You're gonna do the envelope system. And you're gonna do this and you're gonna save this. And, and I said, I'm gonna come back in a week or two and we're gonna talk about it. So I come back in a week or two, it's a true story. He says, I've done it. I said, well, show it to me. He says, this envelope's for Xbox. With a, with a, like, so, he goes, and this envelope's for, for PlayStation 3. And this envelope is for a paintball gun. And I was like, you have completely missed this. And, we, and we, we talked about it. He's doing fine now, okay? He's doing real fine now. But, but, but we, we had to, I had to explain something. So that's the way we think about it. But here, here's, here, in, the, in the scriptures, wasteful can mean that. But more, what's interesting is, and this is where I think Jesus gets at our heart, wasteful means to not leverage it for all that it could be used for. It means to not invest it as it could, it, to not deepen and develop it. Like, stewardship is not the idea that thanks for all these things that I would like to kind of oversee but not touch. That's not stewardship. In fact, in Matthew 25, there's this interesting parable where a guy's given five talents, a guy's given three talents, a guy's given one talent, and the guy with one talent buries it. And the owner or master comes back and says, what, what did you do? You hid what I gave you. Couldn't you put it in the bank and earn like 2% interest on it? That would have been helpful. And so he begins to say all these things. He tells them that they should be not wasteful stewards, but faithful stewards, and he tells them about this story. Look at verse 13, it says this, or verse three, I'm sorry, of chapter 16. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He knows what he doesn't wanna do, right? We've talked about that a lot of times. You don't only need a vision for your life of what you wanna do, you need a vision to run away from. <laughs> I, I don't want this. He knew, hey, well, here's what's gonna happen. If I don't take care of this, I'm going to end up in poverty or I'm gonna end up doing manual labor my whole life. And he's like, I don't wanna do those two things. So he begins to go on. Verse, verse four says this. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take the bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to the other, another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. It's interesting. He you know, what's happening here? Here's what's happening. What's so shrewd about this man is that he goes to other wealthy people who are not as wealthy as the rich man, and he basically cuts them a deal so that they will like him, they will have good thoughts about him, so that later when things fall apart, they might offer him a job. And honestly, they can't be too hard on him because they were part of it. It's like, well, you should have checked with the master. You were part of this as well, so now you're kind of entangled in it, so help me out. So it's very shrewd. Which is, by the way, I want you to see this, which is in verse eight, this is where it all kind of comes to a culmination. Jesus says this, the master commended the dishonest manager 
not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. And then look at verse 8 again. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Here's what he's talking about, and this is a concept that's not talked about much. This is why I think this, this parable is so important. He's talking about what Christians need is they need practical wisdom in life. They need to be shrewd like this man. What he's saying is this, that non-Christians often know more about money and make better decisions about money than Christians in the church. And, and I've seen this so many different times. I, I've seen um, otherwise, and this is going to hit you as I give you some examples, but I've seen otherwise very godly people who they love the Lord and they were trying to repent of sin and they'd like to be used by God on mission and they love to pray and they, they love the Bible, but they had no life skills. They had no ability to live practically. I've had this happen before where a couple signs up to go, to the, to, to go overseas for two or three years to do world missions. And then they, they go through the application process and the IMB says, the International Mission Board says, you can't, you're $30,000 in debt. You've made poor decisions financially for several years now, and so you have, you are in so much debt you can't go on the mission field. I had one girl come to me crying. Well, why is she crying? Because she went to, the, to be a part of the IMB and the mission board, and they told her she was too overweight. You, you didn't steward your body well enough over the last few years, and there's no way we can send you to Nairobi for four years. I, I, I've, se I've seen people, so, so here's what I mean. People have had such a desire to please God, but they've made such foolish decisions financially that they've been unable to do it. I, I've had couples sit in, I've done premarital counseling, and couples, they're crying. It's like, well, we feel like the Lord wanted us to have kids at a young age, and we feel like the Lord wanted us to have a large family, but we've made such foolish decisions our whole life. Let me give you three areas that people make foolish decisions all the time. Uh, college, cars, and consumer debt. Right? The, so the average, it's like, okay, imagine like the average person, and I'm not picking on anyone, I'm not thinking about anyone in particular, but you know, you think about the person who's like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to private school for $70,000 a year to get a degree in philosophy that I'm never going to use. And then I'm going to be shackled to $100,000 in debt. Well, see, here's what happens. The average, the average student who graduates from private school, private college, owes $32,000 in debt. State school, $26,000 in debt. That's before they marry somebody else who has that same amount of money, right? And then it's like, well, the average person who takes out a car, car and I'm, we're not against cars and all that kind of stuff, okay? The average person who takes out a loan on a brand new car takes out $31,000. The average person who takes out a used car takes out $21,000. And the average American has $6,500 in, in credit card debt. And so all of a sudden what you have is you have these couples that come together and they have $100,000 in debt. And it completely hinders them in so many ways. Because what they say is if a couple got serious and said we'd like to get out of debt, it usually takes about 10 years. And people aren't getting married until they're in their early 30s. And so it's like, okay, we can finally, we're 40. We can finally do something. And so Jesus is coming to us and he's like, listen, you, under, you need to understand the cross of Christ and compounding interest. Okay, right? Right, right? It's like, if you didn't get that joke, it's like, you, need, you definitely need to Google compounding interest afterwards, okay? <laughs> but it's like, right? You need to, it's like, well, it's like, how many people don't know anything about, I'm, 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 and I'm not trying to sell anything, I'm just saying, how many people know nothing about life insurance? They know nothing about 529s for their kids' college. They know nothing about how to max out a Roth IRA. They know, I've seen people make so, oh, I've seen people make such poor decision making in buying a home that it's like they can't do anything now. 
It's like it, a lot of times it's the parents' fault there too. There's no, there's not any, there's no relationship there. There's no investment there. There's no warnings there. You know, we're we're all a novice in all these different areas of our lives. But people begin to make all these decisions. So Jesus is speaking to us and saying, "Listen, guys, learn how to use money. Not so you can just make a ton of money and be so wise. It's like what if you learned how to diversify your portfolio so that you actually had something to give to somebody else? That's what he's trying to say." What if you learned how, here's something that would be helpful, learn how to negotiate for a raise. And so that maybe that would, you know, there's all of these different things that it's like Christians in a godly way, in a humble way, in a biblical way, it's like sometimes we think, oh, that's not spiritual. Well, there would be a, maybe an ungodly way to do it. That wouldn't be right. But it's like, well, why, why can't we learn to do that and pray for people and share the gospel? And so he goes on and here's what he says. Verse 9. He says this, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Well, part of what he's saying there is, is that generous people always have friends around them, right? It's like, if you're going to be the kind of guy that's going to say, or kind of girl, I'd love to buy you lunch. I'd love to buy you breakfast. It's not about buying people. I'm just saying, if you're the kind of guy who is, hey, come on over to my house. The person who is generous with what they have will always have friends around them. And he's saying this, he's saying, I tell you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous wealth, that just means cash, so that when it fails, that's the theological motivation to use your money rightly. Not if it fails, but when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. So unrighteous wealth just means untrue wealth. It, it, it's not saying that money's a bad thing, it's saying that money is, is meant for a purpose, right? Money is, we all know this, money's a means to an end. It's like, you can't eat money. <laughs> Right? It's kind of goofy. It's like, I can't eat it. I can't wear it. Like, it's a, it's a piece of paper. What, what's powerful about it is what it can accomplish and what it can do. And he's saying, here's what you need to know. Money's going to fail you. Here's what money's going to fail you. It's going to make promises it can't keep, right? By the way, that's why, if you ever wonder, why is money and God always like, you, you know, it's going to say at the end, you can only serve two masters. Why is that? Well, it's because money's the only, only thing in life that makes promises to you that are very similar to God. I will be a shelter to you in the storm. I will heal you. Will you. Trust me, you can just go up to the Mayo Clinic. I will heal you. I, I, will, I will be able to meet all of you. I can give you the pleasures forevermore. But, but it fails us because ultimately it, it, we can't take it with us, right? We know that. And also it often disappears in this life. I had one guy, he said, um, he said the reason they put an eagle on every dollar bill is so you would know that if you're not paying attention to it, if you don't pay attention to it, it'll fly away. So he's like, you know, it's just, I don't know if you've ever had that experience before where you're like, where did it all go? And it's interesting because even, even the, the research, it's interesting when you see the scientific research and other things catch up to what the Bible teaches, you know? And, and they did, the MIT did this study, and they basically found out that after you can keep the bill collectors away, that's a different amount of money for every person but, and family and everything, but basically once you can keep the bill collectors away, that money means zero to your, adds zero to your happiness after that that it seems to add to your happiness because it's very stressful if you can't pay your bills. So until that point, it seems to add to your happiness, but basically after that, it's like nothing. No, no, nothing in regards to your happiness. And so he's saying, listen guys, it's going to fail you. And, and what we see is honestly, it feels like you, you watch the, um, the, the super wealthy, like I mentioned before, the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts, they seem to get it. It's like, how many yachts do you need? Ted Turner, who was kind of the first guy who ever gave a billion dollars away, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, he said, hey, it's I th he said, I think it's impossible to spend more than $400 million in your lifetime. It's like, all right, well, good fact to know, <laughs> right? But that's what he said. 
And so he says, it will fail us. And then, so basically, here's what he says. The big idea is that are you using your money, he says, for eternal dwellings. He's basically saying this. You're able to invest in something that lasts forever. That you're actually, that, that people use, and it, you can do it this way too, but he says people use money on earth to make friends on earth. He said, what if you invested in kingdom enterprises so that people in Mumbai will thank you in heaven? Isn't that a powerful thought? That there would be people in Brooklyn, New York, who will come to faith in Christ because we planted this church up there that will thank us in heaven. I had this thought this week that I never had, I had a thought that I never had before, which was I thought about how I came to faith in Christ through a student ministry in Pittsburgh out of a church called Allison Park Assembly of God. I never went to that church. I only went through their student ministry. And their student ministry was down the street in the building. I had this thought this week, who paid for that building? The building I came to Christ in, I never met the people who paid for that. I'll meet them in heaven. But obviously there had to be some kind of an initiative and they had to raise some money and somebody gave some large gifts and that building happened. And I've got like five friends who came to faith in Christ in that building. So it's, it's, a, it's a powerful thought. He's saying that we should, we should be investing in it. Now, and I've not talked about this enough, but see, the principle in Scripture is to give first and best to the kingdom of God. And, and here's, here's the principle. Um, if you want God to bless something, you put him first in it. That's it. So it's like, I'd like God to bless that relationship. Put him first in it. I'd like God to bless my job. Put him first in it. I want God to bless my marriage. Put him first in it. I'd really like it if God would bless my family. Put him first in it. I'd like God to bless my finances. Put him first in it. See, what, what happens when you give, and, and some of you don't give. Some of you have never given to the kingdom of God. But let me just tell you what happens when you give. Three things happen. Um, you, you, when you give, you thank God for the past. That's what you do. You say, God, thank you. I'm recognizing that everything that I have is from you. Uh, also, when you give, you say, God, you're number one in the present. And then also, when you give, you say, God, I'm trusting you for the future. It's beautiful. You're doing all three of those things. God, I thank you for the past. You're number one in the present. And I'm trusting you for the future. And Jesus comes at us, and this is, I want you to see this. Jesus comes at us at the very end with a saying that seems innocent, but it's so powerful. This is one of the reasons I believe, again, in the scriptures, is, is how they diagnose our heart. Here, look at, I want you to see the last thing he says in verse 10. One who is faithful, so there's two principles of stewardship, right? Accountability before God and faithfulness in this world. The word faithful shows up several times here at the end. He says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest with very little is also dishonest with much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now here's, think with me about this. Here's what he's saying. If you have a little or if you have a lot, one thing doesn't change. You that unfortunately, you're the same person whether you have a little or a lot. And all, this is important to know, this is, I mean, this, the Bible clearly teaches us, you don't even have to be a Christian to see this, though. What money does is it amplifies and inflates the best and worst things about you. That's what money does. Which is, by the way, there's an old saying, what do you call a broke drug addict? Alive. It's because, well, what would be the worst thing for a drug addict to have? Access to lots of money. Because money isn't always the best thing. Because sometimes what money does is it just allows me, it allows me to inflate and extend and amplify the worst parts about me. Or, on the other end, the best parts. See, I, I saw this with my dad's friend. My dad's got this friend. He's a really nice guy. And I don't know the full story. My dad's told me it before. But basically, this guy invested. It's like the thing that never happens that we all wish would happen, right? He invested in the right stock with a good amount of money, and it blew up. And he, he went from you know, just being a pretty average middle-class guy to basically making millions of dollars. 
And, um, and, you know, he always liked to do two things. He liked to eat and he liked to golf. But he ate at Chili's and he golfed at the public golf courses. And that's what he did because that's what he had. Well, all of a sudden I find out, my dad says, you know, so-and-so is a member at the Duquesne Club now. I said, the Duquesne Club? The Duquesne Club is a club that costs at least $30,000 in downtown Pittsburgh and all you do is eat there. And then you still have to pay for the food afterwards. <laughs> Seriously. And I think there's monthly fees as well. I can't complain too much. He took me there twice. Okay, he did. Um, <laughs> true story. Different menu in every room, all that kind of stuff. Um, so really cool, you know, but so I thought, okay, well, that's interesting because what happened was he loved to eat. I mean, he really did. And now that was, now he had the means to do it. You know, and, you know, then, then it was, you know, he used to play public golf courses. And my dad tells me, oh, he's a member at three clubs, three, the three nicest clubs in our city now. It's like, well, okay, you went from, from public golf course to private golf. And look, nothing wrong with being a member of a country club. In fact, if you are a member of a country club, I'd like to talk to you outside afterwards. <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. Um, no, but, but so what, what happened was he, you know, all that money did was it amplified the best and the worst things about you. And see, the lie that we believe, here's the lie that I think we believe. We believe when I have more, I will be different. Now, if I had, you know, if I had more money, if I had more time, if I had more energy, right? If I had more influence, whatever the more is, if I had more, I would be different. And it, 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 it's not true. See, see, and I've wrestled with whether to talk about this, but I have in all four services. One, one group I particularly want to talk to, because we have a larger group of this in our, in our um, church, is uh, what are called double income, no kids, dinks. Okay? That's the, that's the cultural phrase, dinks. And, um, and, you know, it's interesting because it, it's kind of one of those things where I don't know how else to say it, but if you cannot give as a double income, no kid, if, you don't, if you're double income, no kids, and you don't give to the kingdom of God, you most likely will never give to the kingdom of God. Because I've seen this like a hundred times, right? Because you're double income, no kids, you're like, well, that's great. There's two of us. There's two incomes for two people. Well, then someone gets pregnant. Well, the wife gets pregnant. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to clarify that today. Okay. Um, and, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, what happens? Well, I don't know what happens. Well, maybe we're going to be one and a half income. Maybe we're going to be one income. Okay, well, this is interesting because now there's three of us on one income or three of us on one and a half incomes or three of us on two incomes. And so what I'm trying to say is it actually doesn't, you, the, the principle of giving needs to come in early because actually won't, it, sometimes it's the most time wasted is the time getting started, right? The same thing would be for a college student. Different, but so a college student who says, I don't have any time. It's like, well, I get what you're saying, but a lot of that's self-inflicted probably your schedule. But honestly, anybody who, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but anybody who has a family, right? It's like, okay, well, I know it's difficult as a freshman and sophomore to be generous with your time. Okay, now imagine this. You work a 50 or 60 hour a week job because that's what every job is. And then imagine on top of that, you're married. Then imagine on top of that, you have one or two kids. Then imagine on top of that, you have a house that you're trying to take care of. Okay. So what you actually need to do is you need to learn how to be generous now while you're single, living in a dorm with only three classes to go to today. And I don't mean that, I'm saying, but if you will, that's not a critique, it's just like, actually what happens is you learn to be generous now. And I've seen this in different ways. We, we had a, an encouraging note, a couple encouraging stories. Uh, probably about two years ago, Pastor Dave comes in my office and he says, hey man, we just got a $26,000 gift. And it wasn't end of the year, it wasn't December, it wasn't, you know, it was just like, hmm, we weren't doing anything special. It's like $26,000. I said, who did this? He told me. What I love about it is you, you would never even be able to guess. And and I said, that's amazing. I said, I'm going to call this person. So I call this person up and I say, hey, man, what's, what's God doing in your heart to give a gift like that? And he said, oh, it was just a tithe. I got a big bonus. And I thought two things. One, I thought, I'm going to kill my guidance counselor, okay? 
Because I'm like, I did the math. Like, that's a big, that's a big bonus. Um, um, but, but I said, he said, he said, actually, this is what my mom taught me. My mom taught me how to tithe. I've been tithing my whole life. I thought, and I said, I, I, you know, you kind of always watch words come out of your mouth sometimes. I said, well, thank you. I said, it would have been very easy for you not to do that. Well, the number's so big, and whatever it is. But th- th- this person ha- had, had created a lifestyle, had created, a, had created margin into his life. And, and actually, what was great is it's like, well, actually, guess what? He's the, it, the, he's the same person now. When he gave $1 from $10, now he's giving $26,000 from two sixty, two hundred sixty thousand. dollars And, it, and it's, just, it's just a powerful story. There's, there's another guy. This was an interesting conversation I had one time. This has only happened one time in the history of our church, but a guy walked up to me after church one day. This is before he got in these buildings. He was a doctor, and he walked up to me and said, sorry, I'm not giving to your church. It's okay. <laughs> you know, uh, okay. He said, yeah, I'm really convicted. I, I don't think I was even teaching on giving that. He goes, I'm convicted. I'm a doctor. I'm an attending doctor. I've been using this, 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 this as an excuse. He says, I'm going to start giving. Well, about just not that long ago, I don't know how, he just found out about some need in our church that we had, and he said, I'd like to pay for it. And I'm seeing a guy who self-admittedly wasn't even giving. I'm seeing him grow. He made the decision, and then he almost got, he loved it. And he began to respond to it, right? And, and, I, and I know, the, even now, the response for a lot of us is, yeah, if I got a $260,000 bonus, I would tithe on it. And the answer is, no, you wouldn't. Or the, actually, the correct answer is, no, you wouldn't if you didn't tithe on your $500 Christmas bonus. And it's the, it's the being faithful with little that allows us later to be faithful with much. And so Jesus ends with this statement. Verse 13, he says this, no servant can serve two masters, right? Money is a great servant, a terrible master. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is a great tool, it is a terrible idol. And what's interesting is, you know, we always want every story to point back to Christ. You know, as I, as I thought about this story, I thought, you know what? The, the gospel story is very similar to this, but a little different. In the gospel story, God is the rich man who instead doesn't send out a dishonest steward, but sends out an honest steward, Jesus Christ, who comes to us, the debtors of God. And, and when he comes to us, he comes to us, he doesn't say, here, you know, you, what do you owe? Cut it in half and, and, and pay it. Instead, he says, what do you owe? Okay, you actually owe a, a life of service to God. You owe eternity in hell. You owe being under the wrath of God forever. I am going to pay your debt instead of you. I'm going to pay your debt for you. And in fact, what he says, and this is what's so powerful, I'm going to be the good steward who's going to use everything that I have to serve you. It's like, well, okay, who could save us? Well, he has to be divine. Okay, there's one person in the world. Uh, He would have to have a good relationship with God the Father. He would have to have the ability to live a sinless life. He would have to have the ability to, uh, to absorb and sustain the wrath of God for all humanity on himself. It's like, well, who could do that? Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ comes to earth and he does three things. He lives the perfect life, he dies for our sin, and he rises from the dead over Satan's sin and death. And as we look at that, we're asked the same two questions again and again and again. What will you do with my son and what will you do with my stuff? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as a church. We want to be faithful. We know we're going to be accountable. We want to be faithful. And we've talked on a personal level and on a familial level about a lot of this, but there's a church level to this. And it's, Lord, that the Scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. That's a principle of stewardship as well. And we just feel like in three years, Lord, we say this humbly, we feel like we've been given much. Four services, dozens of community groups, over 200 kids in the building next door, 
Lots of servants, lots of volunteers, lots of people, Lord. Lord, and I, I pray that you would find us faithful, Lord. I pray that you would grow each one of us in thinking how we could be more shrewd, more wise for the good of others and for the glory of God. We ask this in your name. Amen.